Well, we're going to dig in <clears throat> to the book of uh, right, right where we left off in 2 Thessalonians. We've been studying through this book. It's been a good journey so far. And uh, hopefully I won't have to recap too much. But if you haven't been here, um, just to give you a quick background, we're all a little scattered. I'm just going to preach with my arms wide open like this. And hopefully it spreads. Yeah, I don't spit, right? Apparently that's a concern because no one's sitting in the front. Uh, the Thessalonian church was born out of, uh, I mean, a great missionary trip of Paul that he brought, brought along Silas, he brought along Timothy, uh, and presumably Luke as well because Luke wrote about it. But uh, while he was in Thessalonica, which is up there in northern, um, what, just north of Greece and what's now Macedonia. It's, it's, well, it's still Greece. It's Greece today, but at the time, Greece was divided into the southern part, Achaia, and the northern part, Macedonia. And so these are the churches in Macedonia that we read, at, read about, Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Philippi, these places where there was some opposition. Uh, we're, we're told in the book of Acts that Paul went to the synagogue and began to proclaim the gospel, and he was almost immediately rejected. And uh, they weren't content with just kicking him out of the synagogue. They wanted him out of the city. So they started rioting, in fact, dragged one of the early converts out of his house and tried to make an example of him. So Paul was rushed out of the city, but he sent Timothy back. He sent a couple of his guys back, Timothy and Silas, back to minister to these people and kind of... Uh, uh, affirm their faith and confirm what they had been taught because Paul was with them for a while and was sowing the seed of the word, was, was, was nurturing them, was, was loving on them. And when he had to leave, you get the sense that he felt that there was some un incomplete work done. And so he was greatly rejoicing when he found out that they were doing well. He greatly rejoiced when he found out that the reputation of what God was doing in this church had spread throughout all of Achaia, all of Macedonia, in fact, to Asia and to, to other places, Asia Minor, not the Asia we think of today. So there was great work done, and God did a great work in that city. But as, as I've said before, he's going he's gonna to go over some things that, that they need confirming on as far as, you know, uh, being confirmed in the word and, 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 and know that that uh, he's okay, that they're okay, and then he's going to talk about the return of the Lord because that's an issue they're concerned about. And so in these letters, we see a heart of a man who is not just interested in going back and saying, yeah, this many people got saved and this many churches were started. These people aren't numbers to him. They're not stats. They're not data points. These people are so connected to who he is and I want you to see something, and I hope we can see something in the Word here about ministry and about what it's like uh, to be a believer who pours into other believers' lives. Because I really believe, if we were to, if we were to stick up our hands, how many of you feel called to ministry? Uh, depending on what your definition of ministry is, some people would raise their hand and some people wouldn't. Some people would think, well, you mean full-time, like go to Bible school and do something kind of thing, or, you know, but... We all believe that as believers, we're called into his ministry, right? The ministry of reconciliation, the, the, the ministry of the proclamation of the gospel. So we're all disciples here. And whether or not you've got a full-time job preaching the gospel, you have a life of preaching the gospel. And uh, I believe that that's huge. And, and I don't think you can pull it off 
without the same heart that God has. What I hope that we can see throughout these scriptures is something that I believe very firmly, which is that one of the secrets to life is finding joy in the places that God finds joy. Is, is finding satisfaction in the things he says are satisfying. Because when we were in the garden, there was no lack, no emotional needs that weren't met, no physical needs that weren't met. There was no sense of, I don't have enough. It was the serpent that deceived Eve into thinking that was the case, but it wasn't. And so what's happened is Adam and Eve walked in perfect fellowship with God. They were fully satisfied in him. And when we were separated from God through sin, then we began to find other things that we thought would fill that need. But of course, you guys know it never does. We can open magazines today and see that the people who caught everything they were chasing are more miserable than when they started. You know, God says in Isaiah, he says, why, are you, why do you seek the things that don't satisfy? Why do you use your money on bread that doesn't make you full and on, on, on a drinks that don't quench your thirst? But come to me. And he says that over and over again. You see that theme throughout the whole scripture. Come to me. Come to me. And he, he, God is interested in exposing the fakeness of the things we're, we're, we're trying to fill ourselves with so that we can come to him and find the real thing. So now that we're believers, the greatest, the greatest thing about being a believer is that we have an example of what humanity should look like. We have an example of humanity in its perfect form, in its most satisfied, most full of joy form, and that's Jesus Christ. And we look at Jesus and we go, that's how a human's supposed to look. Now that sounds weird to people because they go, well, he's Jesus, he's the son of God. But yet, Jesus is our living example. He has invited us into his family, called us his brothers and sisters. We, we are now, now, he's the firstborn, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, but we were given we were given his sonship. He, he brought us into that family. We've inherited his, he's been given, we've been given his spirit, which cries out, Abba, Father. So we've been changed and given the spirit of Jesus so that we can walk and live and act like Jesus. And I think if you want to find joy, there's no easier place, no better place to look than looking at Jesus and saying, what made him joyful? Because the book of Hebrews says, you have been anointed, and he's quoting from the Psalms, but it says it's about Jesus. You have, he has anointed you with gladness above all your fellows. So Jesus had more gladness than anyone else walking the planet. Here's the guy that says, not my will, but yours be done. Here's the guy that says, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless I hear him say it. And I've said this before, but when we fully buy in to the truth that that's what humanity is meant to look like. That's what satisfaction really looks like. Jesus said, my bread, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me to accomplish his work. You think about what food does for you. Yeah, it gives you energy. Yeah, it helps you to live, but it satisfies you. It's enjoyable. And Jesus says, that's what it's like for me to do the will of God. Now, he's not just some, you know, outlier. Of course, he's, he's Jesus, but I believe if that's his food, that should be our food. I've been searching out joy in the scriptures, and uh, I'm, I'm caught up in the words that David uses like delight. Because delight for certain segments of Christianity and certain parts of history was almost a dirty word. 
Like if you were delighting in something, you were having too much fun. Simmer down. Get control of yourself. But David, just with pure delight, talks about the presence of God. Talks about the fullness of joy that he finds. God says through his prophets, I'm looking for those that would delight to hear my voice. Delight in my commands. Delight in my word. Um, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is joy and pleasure is everlasting. Pleasure, is that a bad word? No. It's, It's only bad when we're looking for it in twisted places. But there's a pleasure found in him. And I believe part of that, and of course we can see it in a pure form when you spend time in the presence of God. You find that joy, you find that delight, you find that pleasure. But I also believe that that pleasure and that joy is to be found in walking out what he's prepared for you, in walking out the will of the Father. And so I I want you to see some joy that Paul felt that uh, might refer to the Apostle John. And I, I want, I'm hoping that tonight we can walk away and say, I believe that I can step into that. I believe that, that I want my heart to echo the Father's heart. I want my heart to echo God's heart towards his people. So I want to read you something from 2 Corinthians. Um, not 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we'll get it right. You guys are already there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We cut off, uh, left off last week when it talked about uh, the people that opposed him when he was in Thessalonica, and uh, you know the 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 people in the synagogue that had set themselves against the the Christians, the believers. But he says in in First Thessalonians two verse seventeen, but we brethren, having been taken away for you, from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now, remember, this is the same guy who earlier in the letter said, we can't stop thanking God about what we've heard of you. Like, we are constantly thanking God about the good reports we got. He's the same guy that just has said to them only a few paragraphs before, I nurtured you like a nursing mother. We care for her children. Then he moves on and he says, I... I exhorted you and encouraged you like a father would his kids. No. I would imagine if you, if you look throughout Paul's life, you'd be amazed at how many times he's rejected, he's mocked by believers that should be on his side. The, the end of his life, he has a trial and no one shows up for it. And he says, well, thank God, God stood with me. You ever felt that way? <laughs> like, well, me and Jesus, at least me and Jesus, you know. And you might think, this guy's really opening himself up. He needs to set some boundaries. He's really opening himself up to hurt because he's really just investing himself in the people of God. But I think you'd be wrong because I think Paul is stepping into the same attitude that Jesus had when he went to the cross, who for the joy set before him despised the shame. Despise doesn't mean you hate the shame. Despise means you make light of it. it doesn't, it's not the most important thing to you. The shame of the cross was nothing compared to the joy after the cross. What kind of joy was Jesus looking forward to? Going to heaven? Because he already had that. He didn't have to go to the cross for that. In fact, he could have said no to the cross. I think the Father would have taken him. You know, (laughs) Jesus said no. Father's like, well, you just stay on earth until you do it. (laughs) Don't come back till you die. I mean, I know it's a hypothetical, but you know. 
Jesus did say, if I asked my father, he'd send angels. He didn't say if I asked my father, I would ask my father to send angels and deliver me, but he'd say no. He said, if I asked my father, he'd say yes. But he didn't. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. So what was the joy? Well, it wasn't just going to heaven. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just pranking the Roman soldiers by coming out of the tomb. (laughs) Watch, watch this. They're going to be so surprised. It was us. We were the joy. We were the source of his joy. That's the great love that that brought Jesus to the cross, was, was his love for us. His love for us was the Father's love for us. Isn't that right? Now, it's impossible to do ministry and do it well, to be a part of ministry, to minister without that love working in you and through you. I'll just tell you a personal story, and some of you have heard me say this before. But as a kid, I enjoyed going places with my parents. I enjoyed being part of ministry. But there were some places my dad would go and things he would do that I was just utterly confused by. Because there were places he'd go and go far off, spend a lot of his money to do it and his time and his energy, where I saw very little thanks and and very little um, reward for it. And I kept thinking, why are you wasting your time on this? Why don't you just focus on, you know, this and this? And, um, you know, fortunately, that... You kind of mature and grow out of that. But there was still a part of me that said, you know, I don't fully understand why he did what he did. And I was coming back from Houston to Edmonton a few months after he went on to be with the Lord. And I was temporarily pastoring the church in Loon Lake. I very firmly, when everybody, anybody would ask me, put the word interim in front of pastor. And I was not planning to take the interim out of the, of the equation. It was interim pastor. I was just keeping the boat afloat until somebody more qualified took over. And on that plane, I laid my head down. I was about to go to sleep and began to just pray like sometimes you do is just lay your head on the pillow and just pray. And uh, on that plane, all the lights off, completely dark, um, I, before my eyes flashed the faces of all these people. I knew where they were from. I saw people in certain parts of the world, in certain parts of this area, and I knew where they were from. And I felt like somebody was pumping my heart full of something and it was being stretched beyond its capacity. And in fact, it hurt a little, but not in a bad hurt. Almost like, you know, that tugging that you'd feel if you watched a really sentimental movie or something. Even though that doesn't describe it. There was something I felt. I felt the love for people I'd never felt before. But it wasn't just a love for people in general. It was a love for these people that God had called me to. And I realized, and it all clicked, and I knew exactly why Dad did what he did. I knew it. And I said, I'll do the exact same thing. I'll be happy doing it. Because I have that love now. I feel that love. That's the love that, that God has for all of us that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's not a love that you get because, you're loving, because the people are lovable. It's a love that comes from the Father through the Holy Spirit in your heart. And it is impossible, as I've said so many times, it's impossible to minister effectively without that love. Or else we're just hirelings, right? And we'll run when it gets hard. But when you love the people God sends you to, even if it's just the three people at work you're working with, but if you love the people you're ministering to, then you love them with the love of the Father. And you feel that in your heart. You know, John said this. He said, don't fall in love with the world or the things of this world because he that does it doesn't have the love of the Father, with him, love of the Father in him. 
He's not saying don't love people in the world because for God so loved the world that he gave his own son. But he's saying don't fall in love with the things of the world and the system of the world. Because if you do that, there's no space in your heart for the love of the Father. Now he's not saying the love of the Father that he's talking about isn't the love the Father has for you. It's the love of the Father in your heart for others. Now that comes from the Father's love for you. But he says, if you fall in love with the things of the world, you won't have space in your heart for the love of the Father that he's given you. So when you see Paul talk about so intimately about these people and so invested, in fact, he talks the same way about the Corinthians. You'll remember there's a moment he writes to the Corinthians and he says, when I came to this place, there was a door open for me in the spirit. I had a prime ministry opportunity, but I found no rest in my spirit because, my, because Titus wasn't there. Why, was he, why did he care so much that Titus was there? It wasn't because he missed his buddy Titus. It was because Titus was supposed to bring him word of how the Corinthian church was doing. He said, so now I finally found out how you're doing, and I'm really happy because of it. You brought me some joy. And I, I look at that, and I go, you see, he could not find rest in his spirit until he knew how they were doing, because that's how invested he was. He's using words like, I mean, come on, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But grown men don't say, I felt like a nursing mother with you. Now, how often do you say that? I feel like a nursing mother to you. And people are like, well, maybe you need to stop taking estrogen pills. (laughs) You know? You need to back off and just go lift some weights or something. I don't know what's wrong with you. But that's the way he had invested his life. I felt like a father to you. So he says here, we, wanted, we had a great desire to see your face, but Satan hindered us from coming. He says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. It's huge, huge thought there. I want you to look at something here. What does he say they are to him? There is hope, his joy, his crown. Now, what is crown? I mean, some places in Scripture, crown's talking about authority, right? Uh, kingship, you know, that kind of thing. But in this case, and in many other cases, when he's talking to the Greek people, the word crown is what they'd use for, for the wreath at the end of the games. So... This is, you know, and they took it seriously because for an athlete to receive that crown of exaltation, that wreath at the end of a race, it wasn't just about winning on the day. To them, they, they viewed it like holistically, like when you got this crown, you're not just being crowned for the race that day. You are being recognized for all the years of training, for all the years of self-denial and sacrifice that got you to that point where you could win that race. You're being crowned for all the work you've put in all your life to get here. Throughout the scripture, Paul uses this language and he talks about a great day when we get, when, and in fact, not just Paul, Jesus uses this language when he says to the church in, 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 in um, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, one place he says, it's to the Smyrnans, he says, I'm going to give you a crown that nobody can take away. So there's a presentation day when the Lord himself will put wreaths and crowns upon certain people who've run the race. And Paul says, he talks in other places about, you know, a crown of, of, of 
righteousness, a crown of this, a crown of that. But here, he says, you're going to be my crown. It doesn't mean that they're literally going to sit on his head. But when I, he's saying, remember, he, the wording here is he says, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. So not just now. There's a day when Jesus returns. I'm going to look around and I'm going to see you guys. And it's going to be the proudest moment of my life. Because here you are. You're my joy. You're my glory. You're my crown. You're my hope. I'm going to look around and I'm going to see this church that was born in the struggle of a city that hated them and still stayed true to the gospel. The word amplified from them and spread throughout the region. Signs and wonders were done in their midst. They were willing to stick to it because they received the word in full power and full conviction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So he's going to look at them and he's going to say, my life was worth it. My life was worth it. I'm going to look around and when Jesus comes back, I'm going to look at you and say it was all worth it. Isn't that awesome? And I think about this because really we're talking about, we're meant to live a life present, you know, knowing what season we're in, knowing what place God's placed us. But we're meant to live a life with an eye towards that day, constantly looking toward that day. And we know that I don't think there's going to be a big trophy for biggest church, big trophy for best website, (laughs) big trophy for biggest bank account, big trophy for the best sermon preacher or the best writer or the best musician. But there is a sense of award, a sense of reward when you look around and you've invested in people that God called you to invest in because people are eternal. Everything else fades away, but people are going to be there with you. Now, I I believe this, and you can believe what you want, but I personally believe that our Lord does not count the same way we count, right? Because Paul's talking to a city where most of the people rejected the gospel. So, so many times in ministry, we view success by how many people are with us, right? Like, Look at, look at the amount of people we got. Now, I believe God wants lots of people because he loves people. And each one of those numbers is a person and people matter. But I don't think he's counting success like we count success. Paul doesn't say this is more successful because more people got saved here or more people got saved here. It's not the amount. It's the quality of what God did in those people. He's not, he doesn't seem embarrassed, ashamed, in any way disappointed that most of the city said, we don't want your gospel. But he's really thrilled about the ones that did. And he's not just thrilled that they received the gospel, he's thrilled that they received it with power, with the conviction, with the joy, with the full conviction, which means fully bought into it, fully believed it, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of tribulation. And he's, he's just over the moon about it. And he says, I can't wait. Because on that day when Jesus returns and we see him and we see him face to face, I'm going to look around and see you and you're going to be the crown that that I've spent my life for. Let's keep reading because it'll it'll add credence to what we're saying. He said, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind behind at Athens alone. And that's the story in the book of Acts when he's looking around at the Oropagos and he's looking at the 
the idols, and he preaches that message. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So he's saying, don't worry about me. I'm not surprised. (laughs) I'm not surprised that people didn't like us. I'm not surprised that they tried to throw us in prison. I'm not surprised that they tried to beat us up. Like, don't be discouraged. Don't think that this means we're doing something wrong. We told you it was going to happen, right? We told you if we're going to preach the gospel, there's going to be opposition. But he says this. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he's saying, you know, I I didn't want my labor amongst you to be useless, to be pointless, to be empty. And how would it be made empty? Well, if you fell, if you let the tempter deceive you. And and one of the reasons he's questioning this, because he doesn't say that to most of the churches, but he didn't get to spend the same amount of time in this city that he did everywhere else. That's why he sent Timothy to encourage your faith, to make sure that you guys are built up. Then he goes on, he says this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Do you hear that? Now we really live. For now we really live. For this is really living. You ever been on a beach and have a nice cold smoothie and have, you know, somebody serving you some french fries or something, I don't know, whatever you like, and you say, ah, this is the life. This is living. I, I don't think many of us had said that from prison. Many of us would say that in, in a time where People are slowly (laughs) surrounding your house, wanting to drag you out. But he says, now we're really living because we found out that you're standing firm in the faith. This is really life to us. Now, we can either walk away and think Paul's a freak, and he's just weird like that, like he's some sort of masochist. Or we can believe that Paul had tapped into the same love and heart of the Father and gained joy, satisfaction, fulfillment from walking and loving as Jesus loved us. I brought this up a little while ago, but one of my favorite ministry verses is in the book of Philippians. When he says, I know I can say this, he says, he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I know I can say this about you, because I have you in my heart and I long for you with the affections of Christ. We talked about this uh, just a few weeks ago, but allow me to repeat myself. That word affection is a a Greek word for guts, intestines, bowels. Someplace in the deep, that was what they believed to be the center of all human life and emotion. I long for you in the deepest place of me. But it's not my longing, it's Christ's longing for you. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again because I truly believe you guys are ministers in your own right. Some of you will 
go places you never imagined. Some, pla- some of you are rooted and planted exactly where you need to be and you're going to bear fruit in those places. But let me say this. You can't minister to people unless you're willing to carry them in your heart. And you can't carry everybody in your heart, but you can carry the ones that God puts there. It doesn't mean they're yours. They're still his. But there's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of, I can't stop praying for this person. I can't stop rejoicing when they're rejoicing. I can't stop praying for them when they're going through a time of struggle. I can't stop loving them. And holding people in your heart can be painful. It can be a struggle because sometimes you leave yourself open to somebody poking you in a vulnerable place or somebody leaving and, and feeling like you had a piece of your own heart ripped out, but it's, it's worth it because we have a shepherd and guardian of our souls that says, don't you worry about your heart. I got that. Carry the people I called you to carry. Love the people I called you to love. Pray for the people I called you to pray for. Give them yourself as I gave you myself. And I promise that as you're giving, you're drinking and pouring out from the spring of life within yourself. It'll never run dry. You'll never grow empty. You can love people until they have no more room to contain the love you're pouring out on them because that love isn't coming from you. It's coming from God. And his love is endless. You can just keep loving unlovable people. You can just keep loving people that don't love you back. You can just keep loving people that in fact hate you and you'll never run out of love because that love comes from the Father. And his love for me is endless and his love for you is endless so I can just keep loving you and if I never hear you say I love you back I still have love for you because I didn't get the love from you we're not just recycling we're getting it from the father I long for you with the affections the guts of Christ and those are the same word that said that Jesus was moved with compassion Moved with his guts. Moved with what he felt in the innermost parts for the people of God. There's that point where Jesus has been ministering and ministering. Remember, he's been pouring out and healing the people and teaching the people. And he, he, he says, guys, you got to find me a secluded place. Says, I'm worn out. I'm drained. I'm exhausted. And Jesus didn't have Disney World. So, you know, he had to find his own place. He tells his disciples, find me a spot. So they, they put him in a boat and they take him to the other side of the sea where it's like, okay, you come with us here. We know a spot. We're fishermen. We know the best picnic spots. We know the best camping spots. We know the best hideouts. Come with us. We'll bring you there. And meanwhile, these pesky crowds look and they see the boat and they figure out where he's going and they run and they meet him at the other side and they're waiting for him like, see, we got here too. And I always put myself in the place of Jesus and just can imagine like, oh, no, they found me. Quick, guys, find another spot. Quick, paddle backwards. You know, get me out of here. I, heard, I, I put in my time. But Jesus gets there and he looks at them and it says he feel, he's moved with compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. So he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them. And I just think <laughs> love will cause you to do things. That, that feeling, the guts of ministry, the guts of Jesus will cause you to pour out when you feel like you've got nothing left to pour out and will supply you as you're pouring out so that you don't run out. We've all seen ministries burn out because they, at some point, 
were pouring out from themselves without being filled themselves. And we always, I mean, come on, guys. We all advise ministers and, and things. Take, some, take a break. Take some time away. We all believe that. And I believe Jesus did that too. I mean, that was one time. But you see what drove him. Paul said in another place, the love of Christ compels us, controls us. If we're crazy, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. John said, I have no other joy. I have no other joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Listen to that. He's an old man by the time he writes that. He's lived a long life. He's outlived the rest of the apostles. He's the last guy standing. He's old and he's, whatever needs to be done, he's done it. He's lived a good life, a full life. I mean, you want to talk to somebody about what, what, you know, tell me about the joys of life. Tell me about what you've experienced. You don't ask a 13-year-old. You ask somebody that's lived a bit. What's life about? What have you figured out in all these years? John, old, old John, who when he was a young man, basically a teen, more, little more than a teenager, put his head on Jesus' chest and, 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 and at the Last Supper, put his head on Jesus' chest and fellowship with the Lord, showed up at the cross, and Jesus talks to him on the cross and says, take care of my mother. This is, this is John. By this time, he's lived a long, full life, and he says, I know no other joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Nothing matches it. It's like my greatest thing in life is to see these children who many of them were like pretty old by everybody else's standards, but to him, they're kids, right? To see my children walking in the truth. I know no other joy. Paul's saying the same thing. You're our joy. We, we just, the greatest joy we get is from him and it's from him about you. We see you. We see you walking in the truth. We see you living out your faith and there's such a deep joy. I want you to buy into the idea that that's the kind of joy that doesn't fade, is the joy of the harvest. Jesus talked about it, didn't he? Talked about the harvest coming in with joy. The harvester, the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. You talk to somebody that spent their life leading people to Jesus, you've met somebody who knows joy. Right? It's without, without doubt. You start talking to them about leading people to Jesus, their eyes light up. They get giggles. They, they just start talking. We have a few people like that here in this church. And it's just the greatest thing. You just say, tell me about, tell me about leading people to Jesus. And they, they just light up. And they're going to get to heaven someday, look around, and see walking crowns around them. See living, breathing wreaths that speak of the goodness of God through their life. There's a joy in that. There's a joy that you get in what you poured out into people through the love of God, through the spirit of God, through the power of God. So I'd say invest in it. People invest in what they think is going to bring them joy. I mean, I know people that invest a lot of money in the, in the boats and their snowmobiles and their cabins, and you can have all those things, there's nothing wrong with them. But if you can invest in that to bring you some happiness, why don't you invest in what's going to bring you real joy? And I'll tell you, the, the two things that I think bring you more joy than anything else is the unadulterated presence of God and the joy of the harvest, the joy of stepping into the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. 
the joy that you get by saying, this is what I deposited in people, and the return is more than I could imagine. Let's just keep reading for a minute. In verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? I mean, did you, guys, did you read this letter? I mean, the word afflictions come up a little too many times for me to be comfortable. Struggle. People don't like me. People are mistreating me. But what does he say? You know, we're having trouble finding words for all this joy we've got. How, how can we thank God enough for all this joy on your account? It's because of you guys that I have all this joy. So here's the Apostle Paul just waiting for Timothy to come back. Can't wait. He's getting restless. Come back and tell me how they're doing. Timothy comes back and he just does a dance. He spins around. He jumps around the house because, yes, they're living. Now I'm living because they're walking in the truth, because they're standing firm in the faith. This is really living. I mean, most psychologists would say that this is an imbalanced man. This is a guy who needs meds. You're, you just, you just, you're not normal, man. You need to find some balance in your life. But, but this, is, this is living. You know, this is what happens when you spend a little too much time with Jesus. You start liking what he likes. You start finding joy in what he finds joy in. You start being satisfied in the things that satisfy him. We've been eating this waxy fruit, this imitation cheese. We've been getting stuff that won't satisfy. And when you get the real stuff, you can't go back. I mean, like sometimes you ever go to the farmer's market and just get those fresh vegetables. And you go back to the grocery store and you're like, ah, it's okay, but it's not as good as that stuff that came straight from the garden. Didn't have to go on a ship or a truck. It just was right here. He says in verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we might see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our Lord, God, our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So what's he saying? We are abounding in love for you. And he says, our prayer is that you would abound in love for one another and for all people. So it, it, in case you just want to write off Paul as just, well, he's a super apostle. He's a super Christian. His prayer is that you guys would feel the same obsession as we feel that you would have the same love that we have, that it would abound. What is, I mean, abounding. Abounding means it's too much, it's overflowing, it's pouring out. This is what God wants for you. He does not want you to have managed love. He does not want you to have love with boundaries. It's boundless love. So he wants it to be abounding. Abounding means beyond the boundaries, beyond the limits, beyond the container. May your love abound for everybody and for the people that are around you, just like our love is abounding for you. So I, I'm thinking if Paul could pray that for them, then we could pray that for one another. May our love abound like this. 
so that we can start sounding like crazy people and say, man, you don't know the joy I get from seeing this person that just got led to the Lord, getting out their Bible and saying, that word is for me. To see them walking in the truth, to see them discipling others as they've been discipled, to see them loving as they've been loved. Praise the Lord. Verse 13, he says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So there's an eye towards that day. There's a joy right now. And then there's a joy that he's looking forward to. Invest in the stock that's not going to drop. Invest in the real thing. Invest your life is we have a choice what we're going to invest our life in. We, have, we absolutely have a choice. You can invest your life in temporary things that will go away. Or you can invest your life in the joy that satisfies now and will be even greater when we see Jesus. That's real joy. That's real living. And you don't know it until you've tried it. But you can't walk away from it once you have. And this isn't just for preachers, and it's not just for pastors, it's not just for apostles. It's for every believer that will give themselves to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to do it. Just jump in, you know. As long as you're dipping your toe in, the water seems cold. If you just jump in with both feet, you'll discover how good it is. And I just encourage you to jump in all the way. I think of what uh, Paul later said to the Corinthians, he said, all these other people, they get fancy letters of common reference letters so that other churches will let them preach there. But he said, we don't need that. You're our letter. Written in our hearts. You're a letter written by God, but written in our hearts and read by all men. Now I think about that phrase, written in our hearts. You're our letter. You're, uh, if we ask people, what have you done with your life? You say, look around. And I, I'll bring up my dad one more time because this said something to me. I remember uh, we had a memorial service for him here in Lloyd. And it was great. I mean, it was just, I felt the presence of God. I felt the love of the people of God and the love of God to the people. Then we had a funeral or a memorial service for him in um, Texarkana, where my parents are originally from, where dad was born. Some of his family that couldn't make it up here were at that service. And uh, it felt different. I mean, we didn't have our people here with us, and so it felt a little different. It was a little bit harder in some ways, as much as we were so thankful for the people that were there. And I remember my uncle, one of my uncles is, was an established chemist, very proficient in his field, and he talked about how dad uh, was quite gifted in the area of science. In fact, when he was a student, he was winning science, state science fairs. And uh, his br- older brother, who was, I was talking to, just said, you know, he could have done so much. He said, and he just said, he, I feel disappointed he could have done so much with his life. And I said, <laughs> I said, you got to see the, this little service we we saw a lot of the roots of dad's life, you know, where he came from, family members. I said, but I wish you'd been up in Canada where you could have seen the fruit of his life because you'd never be disappointed. 
That was not a waste of a life. That was a, a life well spent. I think we can all say that. I want us to all be able to say that at the end of our lives. Like Paul said, I've run the race. I fought the good fight. I finished. And there is laid up for me a crown. There's a crown laid up for me. And it won't fade. And I'm looking forward to that day. Invest in the things and the people that are going to really bring joy and satisfaction. And that doesn't mean the people that will give you something back. Because I found if you invest in, invest in people that nobody else is investing in, most of the time they're not immediately doing anything for you. Sometimes for years they're not doing anything for you. But it doesn't matter because you're loving them with the love of the Father. So it doesn't matter what they give you back. Just as long as you're pouring out what God put in you. Amen? Stand with me this evening. Let's pray.